Got a couple more letters this week. Would you like me to read them to you? I'm going to anyway. First one uh, says, Dear Hope Chapel friends, I have been overwhelmed and very gratified by the vast number of prayer messages that participants from Hope Chapel recently sent to me. Each one was very personalized and showed that the writer was portraying their individual message as opposed to a form letter, right? I've been pleased to share these with my colleagues on the city council. Your kind thoughts are very much appreciated. Sincerely, uh, D. Hardison, Mayor of the City of Torrance. And the second one, it says, Dear congregation members, I have received many letters of support and good wishes from the members of your congregation. I would like to thank each and every one of you for taking the time to think of me and remember me in your prayers. Thank you for your continued prayerful support. Sincerely, Richard J. Reardon, Mayor, City of Los Angeles. So now, those of you that have written those cards, remember, keep them in your prayers because they're counting on you. Right? Okay. Well, I want to talk to you this morning about, in fact, along the same lines, but we're going to uh, expand uh, in terms of who we are as Christians and what God has called us not only to be, but also to do. We've been talking about evangelism and discipleship, haven't we? We're going to continue on that same theme this morning. But I want to talk to you from the perspective that, that we are spiritual workers. What are we? Spiritual. spiritual workers. Spiritual workers do what kind of work? Spiritual work. That's right. We do spiritual work. The thrust of our life is spiritual. We are spiritual beings, first and foremost. We will live eternally. We will have spiritual bodies, bodies unlike these of flesh and blood that are going to pass away. So it's very, very important in a world that diminishes that which is spiritual and dismisses it as superstition and or irrelevant, it is vital for us to... uh, give assent to and visibility of that which is spiritual and give priority to that. And our work is, first and foremost, it is spiritual work. And spiritual work emanates and evidences itself in the physical realm, doesn't it? So we want to talk about that this morning and our role in that whole process. So we're spiritual workers. In um, Matthew chapter 20... Uh, There is a parable, you don't need to turn there, but I want to call your attention to it. Maybe you can look at it later. You know the parable of the uh, workers in the vineyard. And the vineyard is kind of a metaphor for the world, and the workers are those whom God calls to work in his vineyard. That's us. But he calls us to work in the vineyard. What kind of work do we do? Spiritual. Spiritual work, that's right. There's an interesting passage in uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, in verse 10, Paul writes, he says that we are God's workmanship. We have been recreated. We are born again. We are new creatures, new creations. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That means in relationship, in intimate relationship with Jesus, we've been recreated 
to do good works. The good works that God prepared beforehand that we should do. Before God created the heavens and the earth, he already had prepared for us the good works that we should do. What kind of good works are they? They are spiritual good works. They emanate from a spiritual, a true spiritual foundation and power in our life. Now, we have what I would call the three P's. Okay, we have the power, we have the privilege to proclaim the kingdom of God and to minister to the sick and the afflicted in Jesus' name. We have the privilege, we have the power to proclaim and minister. Let me describe to you what I'm talking about. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. You should be already there. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. We've rehearsed this verse for several weeks. I want to go back over it one more time again this morning. Matthew records that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. So Jesus' ministry was a spiritual ministry, but it evidenced itself in the physical realm, didn't it? He did spiritual work, didn't he? He spoke of and he preached of and he announced, he proclaimed the kingdom of heaven and he ministered physically to people. I suggested last week, if you were here last week, I suggested to you that we could substitute for Jesus the church. We could say the church went about through all the towns and the villages preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Is that legitimate? I think it is. Why? Because the church is now the dwelling place of God. The church is the body of Christ. So we have a great privilege of participating in the body of Christ, being members of the body of Christ. We have a great privilege of bringing good news, announcing good news to people. The kingdom of God is here. And we have a great privilege not only of announcing good news, but also ministering good news to people in their life. In the midst of their disease, in the midst of of their entrapment, in the midst of their joyless life, we have a great privilege to be used of God and to minister to people. And we have a proclamation to make. So we have a privilege, we have a proclamation we see that reflected in verse in chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel. Verse 1, uh, Jesus assembles, he calls his disciples, and he gives them authority. And in verses 7 and 8, you see that he tells them, he says, as you go, preach, he says, this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. And he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. And so we have, we have a message to proclaim. With our words and with our actions. We do spiritual work. And we also have the power to do this. If you'll turn to John's Gospel, chapter 14. 
Chapter 14 of John's Gospel. Now look at, look at what Jesus says. Now the whole context here is he's announced to his disciples he's going to go, he's going to go away, he's going to be leaving, but he's not going to leave them as orphans. He will send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who is like Jesus, and he will be in them, and so forth. And he says in verse 12, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. What's he been doing? I mean, he's been doing spiritual work, hasn't he? He's been, he's been affecting people's lives and in so doing, expanding the kingdom of God in their lives and through their lives, hasn't he? Spiritual work. He's been ministering in, in physical, tangible ways. He's been ministering in intangible ways. He's been doing tremendous things. So he says, if you, if you have faith in me, you will do what I've been doing. He means for the church to do what he's done. But then he goes beyond that and he says, and you will do greater things. Because I'm going to the Father. And then, by way of assurance to us, by way of confidence that we will do what he's doing and we can do greater things, he says, I will do whatever you ask in my name. Whoa. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. What's the purpose? The Son may bring glory to the Father. He says, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, does that mean that I can ask him for a brand new pink Cadillac? And he'll do it? I can ask him. No. It means that if I ask him to do whatever will bring my Father glory. His Heavenly Father, my Heavenly Father glory. Remember the context. So that I may bring Him glory. Whatever is God's will, whatever need I can do, whatever spiritual work I can be involved in that's going to bring Him glory, I can ask Him for anything and He'll do it. Spiritual work. Spiritual work. Now, let's flesh that out some. Let's talk some more about this. I'm convinced that we can and we must take seriously our role in bringing our Heavenly Father glory. That's what Jesus' Jesus' whole intent was, wasn't it? that my Father might be glorified. And Jesus said another place, I think it's in, in earlier in Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, He said that men might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We see that when, when Jesus or through His disciples, people were healed and restored, that, that people were in awe and they glorified God. So we see that same theme running uh, through this ministry. So I want to talk about and focus on spiritual work, but with respect to the work of healing, a healing ministry, if you will. And the healing ministry that you and I can be involved in, that God be glorified. And I want to encourage you in the spiritual work of healing the sick. What we believe determines what we'll do. True? Remember that. 
What we believe will determine what we do. Depending upon what kind of theology of healing we have will determine very largely what we'll do and how we'll minister. So bearing that in mind, I want to talk to you about healing. Now, God heals through a variety of means, doesn't he? I want to just kind of talk to you quickly about three main means through which God heals. And certainly, he heals through combinations of these means also. The first of these is natural means. Does God heal through natural means? Oh, yeah. The body is marvelous, isn't it? The psalmist says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. It is, it is amazing to me how the body just kind of heals itself. I mean, we've all been sick and gotten better. And it seems like sometimes when you, when you do nothing, you just kind of lay there, you get better. A friend of mine had surgery recently. And uh, just Friday, we were admiring his scar. I mean, we were marveling. I, the context, the same as we're talking about right now, the context was very simply, uh, we said, isn't it, isn't it amazing how the body and the tissue and the cells, they just, they just grow back together. They just kind of knit together. And, and all of a sudden, now the body is, is healed. It's amazing. So God heals through natural means, and... God heals through medical means, doesn't he? Who of us hasn't been to a doctor? Um, and, and, and through the benefit of medical science, uh, antibiotics, for example. Uh, who of us have not taken antibiotics and experienced an acceleration, if you will, in the healing of our body from disease and some bacterial or viral invasion that has, seek, that has sought to un, undo us, so to speak? So God heals through medical means, and he heals through a combination of natural and medical means. The third means through which God heals is by prayer. We pray. We pray God give the doctor wisdom. We pray God accelerate the body's capacity to, to, to come together, to get it together here. And so we will we'll, we'll pray. But I, I, this morning, I want to focus on prayer, very simply, isolated from the other two means of healing. I want to focus on the power of God to heal the sick in answer to prayer offered in Jesus' name. I want to talk about miraculous healing. Prayer. Spiritual work in that area. And I think this is an area that causes so many people so much confusion. And I want to bring some perspective that I think has been help, so helpful to me, and I hope this perspective will be helpful to you also. I have much to say, and you're going to be concerned about filling in the blanks on your notes. Listen to what I'm saying. Get the tape. You can fill in the blanks later. A lot of people are missing what I'm saying because they're so concerned with filling in the blanks. Pay attention to me. Watch your neighbor. If your neighbor's dozing off, give him an elbow. I'm telling you, this is very, very important stuff. All right? And you can get the tape afterwards. You can listen to the tape and fill in the blanks. And that way you'll have heard it two or three times and you'll even be better off. I want to pose a Three significant questions to you. 
I believe these are significant questions. Are we committed to the biblical truth that God's will is to heal? Are we committed to the biblical truth that God's will is to heal? There's much confusion on people's parts in all quarters of church that, well, I'm not sure that's God's will to heal. Remember the leper that approached Jesus? He said, you can heal me if you will, if you're willing. A lot of people who don't think God's willing. So I pose that question to you. Do you believe, are you committed to the proposition that it is God's will to heal? Are you committed to the proposition that Jesus' changeless power is available today to heal? Is Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever? Are you committed to the proposition that the Holy Spirit is present to heal? See, we have a Trinitarian view of God, a God who is redemptive, a God who heals. Are we committed to that proposition? Now, if we are, if we believe that God is a healing God, then what's our part? I believe that our part is to contend in faith for that healing, but not be contentious about faith. This is where people get tripped up. They make faith the focus. They become contentious about faith. They become legalistic. They have problems rather than contending in faith. What does it mean to contend in faith? It means to live in an attitude of faith. Now, that's not a foreign concept. How many of you this morning brushed your teeth? <laughs> Good, everybody's looking around. Did my neighbor? <laughs> did you brush your ta- teeth in faith this morning? Sure you did. You got up, you put some toothpaste on the toothbrush, you, put some, you ran it under the water, you, did you check the toothpaste to make sure it was all the right stuff was in it that it was good to use? Did you check the water to make sure that there was nothing in it that was bad for you? No, you did it all by faith and you just brushed away. <laughs> you contended for the cleaning of your teeth in faith. Didn't you? Yeah, you just, you just, you lived and you're living in faith. Did you make a big issue out of it? No. Did you wonder? Did you argue? Did you call? Did you say, is the toothpaste okay to use today? Is the water? <laughs> no, you weren't contentious about any of it. You just were contending for the cleansing of your teeth in faith. Now, if we believe that God is for us, then our part is to live in that environment. Now, how do we do that? That's our question. That's what I want to address. Whenever we approach the subject of healing, miraculous healing, whenever we approach God's intention to heal the sick, to heal the afflicted, to bring deliverance to the captives, we must assert that the grounds of our confidence is rooted in love. 
Any confidence I have in God, any confidence that I have in His will to heal and to deliver and to restore must be grounded in love. His love. His love. John 3.16 says, God so liked the world. God so despised the world. God so what? Loved the world. God so loved the world. His whole motivation for sending His Son was what? Love. To set us free. His whole motivation was love. First Corinthians chapter 13. Turn there. First Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to focus on verse 13. Now, the, the context, most of you are aware, is one of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are those special enablements given by God to each believer so that they might do spiritual work for the building up of the church, right? Okay. But, smack in the middle of that discussion on spiritual gifts, where there was so much contention and in worldliness in the church in Corinth and in so many churches... Paul inserts this discussion on love. He says, underlying all the gifts and underlying the use of the gifts, if in fact they are to be effective for the building up of the church, the motivation has to be what? Love. And so there's this discussion on love. And so he describes love. Agape love, the kind of love that is essential to the life of the church and fruitfulness in our life. And then he says in verse 13, now by the way, the context here again is, he says that, that these gifts will pass away. Now some people believe that they passed away already. I don't believe that. I believe that all of God's gifts are still present for the building up of the church. He says, but when the perfect comes, will not need these. What's the perfect, do you think? Jesus comes back. He says, but though these things will pass away, he says, three things will remain. Three things will endure. Three things will not pass away. What are the three things that he says will not pass away? Faith, hope, and love. And he says, the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. Now, bearing that in mind, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. The greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love. Now, in Ephesians chapter 3, we pick up Paul's discussion of verse 14. Paul says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. 
So in that new person that I am in Christ, that new spiritual person that I am, that I might be strengthened by power from his spirit. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, now notice what he says, being rooted and established in what? Love. As a Christian, when I become a Christian, I have I've been rooted, I've been established in God's love. God's love is foundational for my life. Are you with me? Without that foundation, I have no life. I have no life as a Christian. I have nothing. So I'm rooted and established in his love. So he says this. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. He says, oh, I pray that you could get a hold of God's love. I pray that you could get a hold of how much he loves you. And then he says, not only that you could get a hold of how much he loves you, but that you could know this love. That you could know this love that surpasses knowledge. Not just know about it, but to know it. He says, when you know the love of God, you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What in the world is he talking about? He's talking about you have the full resource of God to not only be spiritual, but to do spiritual. To be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. That you would be so full of God. How do we, uh, what, how else do we say that? Be full of the Holy Ghost, right? You're so full of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit just drips off of you. <laughs> I believe that. Doesn't the Bible say be full of God's Spirit? Be continuously filled with His Spirit. You can't do spiritual stuff without spiritual resource. He says, be full of my Spirit. If either, I'm either going to be full of, my, full of God's Spirit or I'm going to be full of what? Yeah, me. I'd much rather be full of His Spirit than full of me. Most of the times we're full of us, aren't we? <laughs> the early apostles and disciples did incredible things. I mean, you know, people would lay, lay their sick along the side of the road so that when Peter and John walked by, just so that their shadow would fall on these guys. Could it be that they were so full of the fullness of God that, 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 that the, the spiritual power just emanated from them? They would take hankies and, and, and just touch Paul's body, then lay him on the sick and people would get well. Should that be normative or should that just be the exception? I think it should be normative. 
Now, some people sensationalize it. Some people make money off it. But I think there's something, too, when we know the love of God, when we're full of God, there ought to be some effect in us and through us. I would suggest to you that healing is rooted in the love of God. It's not rooted in the power of God. It's not rooted in the power of God. Healing is rooted in the love of God. So many times we're focusing on the power rather than on knowing the love of God. Now there's an order. I want you to notice that order from verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 13. There's a particular order there. It's not just happenstance. Paul didn't just write these words down in any particular way for no reason. He wrote them down in a very particular way because I think there's a distinct order that must be maintained. Faith, hope, love. I think it's essential to keep that order. Because if we don't keep that order, then we are in the danger of, I think, developing a system of ministry that one is loveless or could very real, very really become uh, judgmental and or condemning. Everything's got to start with love, doesn't it? Love has got to be the foundation. If you're going to build a house, what do you, what do you lay down first? A foundation. And it's got to be a strong foundation. It's got to be a lasting foundation if, in fact, the superstructure of that house will, will last. And so we, we have this foundation. We are rooted. We are established in love. And out of that love now grows the superstructure of our life in terms of hope and faith. Healing rooted in love. Healing, rooted in love, will engender hope, and hope gives birth to faith. Hope gives birth to faith. Now consider the implications of not rooting healing in the love of God. What if we, not, what if we don't start with the love of God? What if we start, as so many people have done, with faith? Typically, we read the Gospels and we hear Jesus say, your faith has made you well, which leads us to the implication that, well, I must have, have to have great faith, right? So we automatically start with what? Faith. Now, if you start with faith... you're going to be pretty soon pressed to develop a theology of healing that is based on merit. In other words, I've got to do good enough, I've got to be good enough, I've got to have good enough faith if I'm to be healed. We've all been through that. How many people have felt you, just, you're, you don't have faith? You start with faith, and you're frustrated. And you feel like somehow you're not good enough because you don't have this faith. 
So you're automatically in, in this theology of having to merit it rather than understanding that faith comes as a gift from God. You say, well, how do I get it? How do I get it? We're going to get to that. But the critical thing is, is that we don't start with faith. If we do start with faith, then we never come to hope. If you start with faith, you remain hopeless. That's another way of saying it. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we have this definition of faith. I think it's very interesting that the writer says, faith is being sure of what we hope for. Hope must be a precursor of faith. And by hope, I don't mean some kind of, of weak wishing. That's not what we're talking about. Hope is entirely different. Hope is confidence. I have a great hope. We'll talk about that in a minute. So we can't start with faith. One, because that won't lead us, that won't lead us to hope, and secondly, it'll certainly lead us down the road of, of legalism eventually. Well, what if we start with hope? Um if we believe that all healing is rooted ultimately in hope, we'll be in the danger of developing a theology of healing that is based in suffering. Let me describe to you what I mean. If you start with hope, you never come to love. Because it's just too hard to love someone that you think may either be punishing or perfecting you using solely the instrument of sickness or suffering. If I come and I start whipping you, I say, this is good for you. Is that going to endear you to me? Is that gonna, are you going to love me? I mean, you're going to try... But see, what I'm suggesting to you is that the hope of your getting better is going to rise out of your suffering. I'm whipping you. So you're hoping in suffering that you're going to get better. Are you going to get better? No, you're going to get worse. Now, this is, this is a very critical point. So many of us have a theology of healing that emanates from our hope that somehow this suffering is good for me. But when we start with that hope, it never brings us to love. Because we will not, we cannot, it's too hard to love somebody that we think is making us suffer. Now, is suffering in this life? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's trials, there's suffering, there's difficulties, there's persecution, all sorts of things. Jesus already told us. But he did say to us, because, because I love you, I will use all those things for your good. See, it always goes back to love, doesn't it? So it's critical that we start with love. The love of God in our life if we are to have a sound theology of healing. And if you start with love, 
have the grounds for a glorious hope and a strong faith. A glorious hope and a strong faith. Love is the only starting point at which all three of those aspects can be fully realized. If I don't start with love, I'll never have hope. I'll always be hopeless, and I'll never have faith. Not the kind of faith that's effective. God is committed. God is committed. He has made the fullest commitment he can possibly make to us. How has he done that? He so loved us that he sent his only son to die for us. So we've got to see the extent of his love, his commitment to us. And with that commitment, we are confident, absolutely confident. So John tells us God loves us. He goes on to tell us in 1 John chapter 3, his first epistle, he goes on to tell us that while love motivated the sending of his son, the purpose of Jesus appearing was what? To destroy the devil's work. <coughs> to destroy the devil's work. And what was the devil's work? Anybody remember? John 10.10? 10? To steal, kill, and destroy. Understand this, this relationship. God's action in sending Jesus to destroy the devil's work. And the devil will use anything. His sole purpose, his sole intention is to use anything to steal from me, to kill me, to destroy me. Anything. He's lots of latitude to operate, doesn't he? But God's purpose and God's action to destroy the works of the devil is ultimately rooted in nothing less than his love for us. I love you so much. I'm sending my son so that when he appears and he does his work, it will be to such to destroy the devil's work, which is out to destroy you. I love you. Isn't that glorious? John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. He says, But I have come that you would have life and have it to the full. That means today. The beginning of the fullness of life can happen today. All that, that, that is meant for destruction from that camp, Jesus has come that you might have the life of a full and healthy and whole life. I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that when we know the love of God, then we are also assured that there is no event, no situation, no circumstance in our life that falls outside of the circle of his concern for us. God 
cares for me. He wants my very best. His purpose, his plan for me is good, pleasing, and perfect. He says to the prophet Jeremiah, I know my plans for you. There are plans to bless you, plans to prosper you, not plans to harm you. When I know his love, then I am convinced of his great concern for me. Have you ever known somebody's love for you? When somebody loves you, they say, I love you. You say, you do? You love me? How wonderful. And that, that love for you encompasses everything about your life. That person who truly loves you, they care about you. They care about every aspect of it. They attend to you. I love my wife. I want to attend to every area of her life. I want her to feel my concern for every area of her life. She loves me. She, she contends for every area of my life. She, she cares for everything in my life. She cares for me. I feel that. I'm confident. And, and there's a dynamic now that breaks loose in our life when we know this. That is that love gives birth to hope. Love gives birth to hope. What is hope? I define hope this way. That capacity to hold on to the promise of God's love. That capacity to hold on to the promise of God's love as we contend for His purposes to be worked in and through my life. Translated, that means this. God, you love me. You love me, I know your love. Because you love me, I have a great hope. I have great confidence. And Lord, because I have that great confidence, I can say, your will be done. Lord, let's go. You see what I'm talking about? But it's, it's got to start with God's love in our life. Romans 5, verse 5. Paul speaks of a hope that does not disappoint the hope that does not, does not disappoint, the hope that is eternal, the hope that is strong, comes because God's love first has been poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. God has poured His love into our hearts. When we know that love, it gives birth to a glorious hope. A glorious hope. And I can say, Lord, Your will be done. That kind of hope, given birth to by love, declares that our confidence in His love will never, ever allow us to be ultimately separated from the full provision of His promises for healing and deliverance. Never, nothing shall ever 
ever separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I have that hope. I have that confidence because I know his love. Nothing can separate me. My hope grounded in God's love releases me from the fear that things will never be different. Oh, how many people are hopeless. How many people are hopeless. How many people think this is, nothing's going to change. There's no hope. Things are never going to be different. I'm doomed. Anybody relate to what I am just said? All of us can do it one degree or another, one point or another. But you see, I am thrilled to announce to you that our hope grounded in God's love, releases us from that fear that things will never be different. We have the hope. We have the confidence that at any moment, things are going to change because God changes things. The psalmist says it another way. Psalm 112, verse 4. It says, light arises in the midst of the darkness for the upright. Oh, I have a hope. I don't know what's going to happen today. I don't know what breakthroughs is going to happen today. I have great hope. I have great hope. I have great hope. People think I'm sick. I say, yes, I'm lovesick. Because I'm lovesick, I have great hope. That kind of hope addresses the issue of living as kingdom people. Do we live as kingdom people? Only when we have this kind of hope. We live expectantly. We live moment to moment. People who are experiencing God's breakthrough in our life now. I am experiencing the very present reality of God in my life now. Because I have this great hope. And because I have this hope, I can encourage other people. I can say, hey, God wants to do great things in your life. God loves you. He wants to set you free. Ultimately, we are awaiting the fulfillment of his kingdom, aren't we? The full realization of God's kingdom. His kingdom has come and is coming. We are living in the already and the not yet. We know in part, Paul says. We prophesy in part. We heal in part. But though it's God's will for us to prophesy, though it's God's will for us to know, we know in part. Though it's God's will for us to know healing, we heal in part. We live in the already and the not yet. But hope, a glorious hope, fashions and affects our life now and as well as we await the fulfillment of his kingdom. This hope causes us to live as people with eternal values shaping our life now. Eternal values, hope of eternity. But those 
values shape our life now. That's part of our, our present hope. Even if and even when the change that we seek is not immediately experienced. You see, this kind of hope never produces shame. It never lets us down. Those of us who are believers in divine healing, we're never ashamed. This kind of hope does not disappoint. If I know that I am loved, truly loved without limit, then all the lies that God doesn't care, all the whispering in my ear, all the things that seem to fly in the face of what God has said in his word to me, of all of his promises, all those things can be silenced. Once I know that I'm loved and I'm loved without limit, I can silence all the buts. But! 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 God loves me. I know his love in my life. And I have a great hope because he loves me. I have a great hope. Faith that is rooted in the love of God and is convinced of his compassion for those who are sick and afflicted leads to a certainty in his desire and ability to heal. Faith rooted in his love. It leads to an absolute certainty in God's willingness, God's ability to heal. I tell people all the time, I promise you I promise you, God loves you. I promise you that if you will receive his love, if you will come to grips, and if, you will, if you'll pray, God, I want to know your love in my life. And if you will love him in response, I promise you things will change in your life. You can experience the very presence and the very power of God to change you, change your life, change circumstances in your life. I'm convinced. I have no doubt in my life. No doubt whatsoever. Faith that is rooted in faith, however, which for so many of us may be the case, will cause us to focus on our inadequacy rather than his adequacy. So many times we're focused on faith. We have faith in faith. No! Not at all. That leads to a kind of a works orientation, kind of a merit system, if you will, to get faith. Faith is not suppressing our doubts. A lot of people will think, well, I've got, to, I've got all these doubts, so I've somehow I've got to suppress these doubts. No, 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 that's not faith. Faith is the assurance that flows out of, his conf out of the confidence that he cares for me. Faith flows. It's a, it flows from the confidence. He cares for me. I've got love. He loves me. And that gives me great hope and that gives birth to faith. It's a dynamic that God has created. It's not something I generate. I don't crank up my own faith. How many times have you tried to do that? Got faith. Got faith. <laughs> faith. I'm going to have faith for this. I'm going to have faith for this. I'm going to have faith for this. 
I mean, it's obviously a caricature, but the point is that's what so many of us have struggled with. Rather than resting in the love of God, experiencing the love of God, quit striving. Begin to know that He loves you and then begin to know His love. That gives rise to a great hope. I have hope. I have hope. I have hope. God really cares. And out of that grows faith. Did you make any of it happen? No. Isn't that exciting? God does it all, doesn't he? It's just like Jesus said. Come to me as a little, what? Child. Child. Come to me with childlike trust in my character. I'm your heavenly father. What little child, knowing the love of his father, her father, knowing that love, what little child will not come freely? What little child doesn't come with great hope and great faith, right? Somebody said last night, yeah, even when they move out of the house, they still come. <laughs> That's not a bad sign, is it? <laughs> so we come as little children. We don't come with all of our doubts. We don't come with all of our qualifications. We don't come with all the buts. We come because we know that our Father loves us and His purpose for us is wonderful. We have great hope when we approach Him. And great faith. Faith is... It must be defined in the context of relationship. Faith is not psyching yourself up. It's not psyching yourself out. It's not psyching somebody else up. Faith is not some psychological gimmick or certainty. Faith is that which flows out of the love of God. Our faith is in God not in our faith. Our faith is in God and in His willingness and in His faithfulness not only hear our prayers but also to answer them. My Heavenly Father loves me. He cares about me. He hears me and He gives me good gifts. Beloved, what we believe about healing, what we believe about healing our theology of healing, as we said earlier, will determine what we do about it. If we are to be spiritual workers, if we are to be, as Jesus, going about telling people, announcing good news, proclaiming good news, and ministering healing to the sick and afflicted, what we believe is critical. Absolutely critical. If we are to have a sense of expectation or certainty at all in prayer for the sick and afflicted, what we believe is vital. The more secure we are 
in our belief that God wills our health and that he personally works for it, the more freely we will receive his healing and the more eagerly we will work for it in the lives of others. I know that I know God loves you. God loves you. He wants to save you. He wants to give you life. And he wants to give you life to the full. But, but, no buts. Don't let the buts encroach. But they easily do, don't they? Beloved, I would suggest to you that the faith that pleases God and is effective for healing and deliverance is faith that is rooted in his love and enlivened by hope. Oh, I have a great hope. A great expectation. Because I know he loves and that gives rise to faith. Shall we pray? God, you have commanded us to make disciples. You have given us a great privilege to be your ambassadors, announcing good news and bringing that good news in tangible ways into people's lives. Father, I pray that first and foremost, we would know that good news in our life. That we would know your love. And that because we know your love, we have a great and glorious hope that is present and eternal. And that that hope would, in fact, give birth to faith that is effective. Father, I pray your blessing on the church. That we would be people who truly will be full of your spirit. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Thank you for your great purpose. And thank you for Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. I am really glad that God loves me. I mean, I'm really, really glad. And there are times when as I I think about his love. It brings me to tears. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Why? Because he loves me that way. I can't love you unless I'm full of his love. I wish that I knew his love every single moment of every single day. But I'm thankful for times like this. And I'm thankful for the reminder of communion.
I'm thankful that Jesus gave us this little sacrament, if you will, so that we could be reminded again, we could be refreshed and come back, reaffirm. Yes, God, you love me. This bread and this juice, reminders of your love for me. Communion is a, and it should be a very peaceful time. It should be a healing time. But sadly, many, many people miss the rest. They miss the peace. They miss the healing that comes at the Lord's table. The Apostle Paul rebuked the Corinthian church. In his first letter in chapter 11 to them, he he told them that um, they they didn't appreciate communion, and hence they didn't appreciate what Christ had to offer. They were carnal, and they were selfish, and they diminished the value and the benefit of Christ's death. Just how they conducted communion. What they did reflected where they were, what they believed, how they felt. And he rebuked them, and he said to them, you know, because you approach the Lord's table in such an unworthy manner, so you diminish its value, you diminish its worth. He said, a lot of you are still sick. A lot of you have died. He makes a direct connection. Is it possible that a corollary to that could be that when we come to the Lord's table, it is a time for healing? It is a time for restoration? It is a time for being set free from bondage? But many miss it because they come in a manner that is not valuing the full benefit of communion, of what Jesus has done. I would offer that to you for your consideration this morning. You look at this piece of bread and this cup of juice. Is that all they are? Or do they represent far more infinite realities the body and the blood of Jesus 2,000 years ago, prophesied even before then, way back the beginning of, of history, that Jesus would die for us, that God's love would be so great, He would give the gift of His Son, that we might have life. Do you want love, life to the full? So, God, I need you. You love me. I long to know that love. I long to be free. I long to know the fullness of your life in me. Each one of us, individually, I can't do it for you. I can't come to him. I can come to him on your behalf, but you've got to go. 
Isaiah says that by his stripes we are healed. By the beating he took, by the whipping, and by the offering of his body, he took his disease, our diseases and our sins upon himself for us, that we might be free. There's stripes, there's marks on this piece of bread. A picture of the bruises on his body for me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. He said, this is my body. Take and eat. And in so doing, we believe. We believe that he loves us. And we believe that through that love, healing comes to our life. That's what we're saying. When we eat this, we're saying, we're believing, we're taking Jesus into us, his life. Take and eat. Thank you, Jesus. The cup, again, he points to it. It pictures the pouring out of his blood and the sacrifice of his life. Life is in the blood for our sins, punished for us, that we again might be free. He said, remember me. Lord, we remember you. We remember that you came to give us life and life to the full. We received that life this morning. We know and are confident that you love us. And we thank you. We praise you this morning. To Jesus. I pray that you know his love that passes knowledge, that you might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God in your life. For the spiritual work that he has for us. Amen? Amen. Alan, what song do you have for us this morning? Your love. Oh, let's sing. Let's stand and sing his love.
Jesus to you, Lord. 